Let's open our Bibles together at this time to the book of Daniel, chapter 12, and verse 1. Daniel 12, 1, for our message from the Word of God this morning. If you're using the Pew Bible, Daniel 12, 1 will be on page 919, if you need a little help in finding Daniel 12.1. Today's date is June 13th, 2021. Today's text is going to be in Daniel 12.1, right on down to the end of the book in verse 13. And the title of this morning's message is Michael takes a stand. Michael takes a stand. And we begin with the story of two men who were talking at work one day. And one of them said to the other one, every morning I like to stand on one leg like a flamingo as a sort of a stretching exercise that also helps me practice my balance. Well, this morning my wife started complaining about this. So I told her, this is my house. Don't make me put my foot down. Well, last week we saw that the angel Gabriel is telling Daniel about the tribulation. And here in the last chapter of the book, Gabriel gets to the part of the story where Michael, the archangel, has to take a stand and put his foot down. I direct your attention to Daniel 12, 1, where Gabriel tells Daniel, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, Daniel, the children of Israel. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation Israel, even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. Now, to begin with, when Gabriel says that Michael will stand up at that time, He means the time he has just finished talking about in the last verse of chapter 11, where, speaking of the Antichrist, it says, He shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. So, as you can see, 
the time when Michael will stand up is when the Antichrist, quote, plants the tabernacles of his palace. <laughs> you say, well, what does that mean? Well, Israel's temple is sometimes called a palace. And it had more than one building, as you see in your first reference in Matthew 24.1. Remember when Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. Those are the tabernacles of Antichrist's palace there in verse 45. The tabernacles of the temple that he is going to plant between the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean Sea, as we saw last week. In the glorious holy mountain of Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is called a mountain because it's located on a hill. And because in the Bible, mountains are types of kingdoms. And the kingdom of Israel was based in the city of Jerusalem between those two seas, folks. But it is when Antichrist takes a seat in the tabernacles of his palace and declares himself God, that's when Michael takes a stand and puts his foot down and says enough is enough. And he does it by doing what we read in your next reference in Revelation 12, 7 to 12. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, the devil. The dragon fought in his angels and prevailed not. And Satan was cast out into the earth. And then later on in the chapter, naturally, it says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth, for the devil himself has come down unto you, having great wrath. And that great wrath you read about there is what causes the time of trouble that you read about here in verse 1 of chapter 12. Trouble such as never was. It's the time the Lord called in your next reference, Great Tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world, nor ever shall be. Well, as you can see there, folks, the Lord was quoting this verse here in Daniel. He had his Bible open on his lap just like you do. But in verse 1 here, when in when it adds that it's going to be a time of trouble such as there never was since there was a nation. That's talking about the nation Israel, folks. And that tells you that once Michael kicks Satan to the curb of the earth, you know, gives him the left foot of fellowship, <laughs> Satan's going to come down and concentrate and focus his great wrath on the nation Israel. But verse 1 of chapter 12 says that at that time, Daniel's people are going to be delivered. 
You read about that in your next reference. Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's, or Israel's, trouble. But he shall be saved out of that time of trouble. And the way that God plans to save Israel out of that trouble is by the second coming of Christ. You read about it in Zechariah 9, 14 to 16. And the Lord shall be seen over them, over the people of Israel. And his arrow shall go forth as the lightning. The Lord of hosts shall defend them. And the Lord their God shall do what verse 1 of our text says, save them in that day. Folks, you're reading a description of the battle of Armageddon. That's how Jews will be saved out of the tribulation. But did you notice in verse 1 of our text, it says that this deliverance is only going to be available to everyone written in the book. And that's talking about the book you read about in your next reference in Revelation 20, verses Verse 15, I think it is. Whosoever was not found written in the book of... Oh, 12 and 15. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And the book of life there is obviously the book of eternal life. That means only saved Jews are going to be delivered at the second coming of Christ, folks. Unsaved Jews, they're going to be fighting on the side of the Antichrist. And they're going to die in the Battle of Armageddon. And once the Lord gets rid of all the unbelievers on the planet, well, it's time to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth. And that kingdom is going to start with a resurrection. One that you read about in the next verse of Daniel 12, in verse 2. Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame, an everlasting contempt. Now, as it says there, saved Jews are going to rise to everlasting life, right? And unsaved Jews will rise to eternal shame and everlasting contempt. And folks, that means hell. You say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. How do you know they're going to experience that everlasting shame and contempt in hell? Well, we know it because this verse that you're looking at here in verse 2... It's the one the Lord was quoting in your next reference in John 5, verses 28 and 29. When the Lord said, All that are in the graves shall come forth. They that have done good under the resurrection of life. And they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. And that's obviously talking about rising from the dead to the damnation of hell. So, 
here in verse 2, why would Gabriel say the unsaved are going to rise to the damnation of shame and everlasting contempt? Well, you know what shame is, right? Somebody does something wrong, we usually say, shame on you. And we pour contempt on them if it was a serious enough thing. And in hell, unbelievers are going to be receiving shame and contempt everlastingly. So you say, well, wait a minute. Who's going to be giving them shame and everlasting contempt? And you know what? You're not going to like the answer. Because it's going to be believers. Do you remember how Isaiah said in your next reference about how the Jews are going to be worshiping God in the kingdom? In Isaiah 66, 23. It'll come to pass that all flesh shall come to worship before me, saith the Lord, and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die. Remember the Lord quoted that to talk about hell? That's what we're talking about here. Neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. Folks, in the kingdom of heaven on earth, hell is going to be like an open pit barbecue. And Jews are going to worship God by looking at the damned and abhorring them. And I looked it up. That word abhorring, that's a synonym for shame and contempt. It means to despise somebody, as you see in your next reference, Leviticus 26.43. They despised my judgments, God said, and they abhorred my statutes. So it saved Jews who will be the ones who are going to be giving unbelievers shame and everlasting contempt. And you know what, folks? I can't prove it, but I, I think we will be too. And that would include your unsaved loved ones. So if you don't like the idea of abhorring and despising your unsaved loved ones. You might want to start witnessing to them, praying for them, and getting serious about winning them to Christ. Now, verse 2 makes it sound like those two resurrections are going to take place at the same time, doesn't it? But that's only because Gabriel didn't know what the Lord later revealed to the Apostle John in your next reference in Revelation 24-7. John said, I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, which had not worshipped the beast. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. So as you can see, folks, saved Jews who die in the tribulation, they're going to rise before the Lord's thousand-year kingdom. And that's also when 
all the Old Testament Jews will rise to reign with Christ if they were saved. That means when Revelation 20 talks about the rest of the dead, the rest of the dead are unsaved Jews, folks. They rise from the dead and they get judged after the millennium, just like John goes on to say in your next reference in Revelation 20, 7-15. It's when the thousand years are expired that the dead were judged. And that's talking about the unsaved judge dead because it goes on to say, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Well, as we read on here in Daniel 12, Gabriel tells Daniel what happens after the resurrection of saved Jews in verse 3. They that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. And they that turn many to righteousness are going to shine as the stars forever and ever. Now here, we, we don't have to wonder who these wise guys are. <laughs> these, these wise people. Because this is one of those verses that says something and then says it again using different words. They that be wise are they that turn many to righteousness by leading them to the Lord. As it says in your next reference in Proverbs 11 and verse 30. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. And he that winneth souls is one of those wise guys. Now here, pay attention. Notice it doesn't say you have to be wise to win souls. Folks, it says you're wise if you do it. You don't have to be a Bible scour to tell someone Christ died for their sins. And they can be saved by believing that. But you do have to be wise to tell them. You have to be wise enough to know that winning souls is more important than winning arguments or winning battles or winning games or contests or anything else in life. In other words, you have to know that living for the Lord is the most important thing in life. And here in our text, Gabriel says that wise Jews will shine as the brightness of the firmament. And you know what he means by the brightness of the firmament. If you don't, look at your next reference in Genesis 1, 14 to 16. God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven." The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. So Gabriel is saying that Jews who win souls will shine like the sun. And he means in the kingdom of heaven on earth. You know that because this is probably the verse the Lord was quoting in your next reference in Matthew 13.43. 
And shall the righteous shine forth as the sun? Where? In the kingdom of their father. But as we pointed out in our scripture reading this morning, you're going to be shining like the sun in the kingdom of heaven in heaven. Isn't that great? Now, when Gabriel adds in verse 1 that they'll shine as the stars forever, isn't that interesting that God knew, let's see, this would be about uh, 2,500 years ago. 2,500 years ago, God knew that stars are suns. <laughs> oh, I love that. It's one of the many proofs the Bible is the Word of God. All right, as we move on, Gabriel's been, if you've been with us for this study, you know Gabriel's been talking to Daniel for two chapters now, giving him the details of the tribulation and so on. And uh, he finishes in verse 4 with some words of advice for Daniel. <laughs> but thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book this book that you're writing, even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge will be increased. Now, to begin with, the best way to define, to define what Gabriel meant by saying, shut up the words and seal the book, is to compare what the Lord said to John in your next reference, Revelation 22.10. He saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Why not? For the time is at hand. The Lord told John not to seal the book because the things that the book prophesied were at hand. They were about to come to pass. Of course, the mystery interrupted the things that John talked about in Revelation. But here, here in Daniel 12, that means when Gabriel tells Daniel that he should seal the book, it was his way of telling him that the things that he saw were not at hand. They weren't about to come to pass. But when they do, Gabriel says that many are going to run to and fro and knowledge will be increased. I sometimes get emails about that verse asking if that's talking about what's happening today with the internet. You know, the information superhighway. <laughs> but think it through, folks. You don't have to run to and fro to increase your knowledge that way. Unless your computer's a lot more primitive than mine is. I don't know. But And, and, and here's another thing. We're living in the dispensation of the mystery. And mystery is the opposite of prophecies like this verse here. So no prophecies in Daniel are being fulfilled today. Not even that one, folks. I don't care how much knowledge the world thinks they got. This is talking about the increase of the knowledge of the scriptures. And how many believers are going to be running to and fro in the tribulation doing what it says in Matthew 24 and verse 14. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world. Well, how's it going to get in all the world? Those believers are going to run to and fro in all the world. 
And then the end comes. Folks, the knowledge of Christ and God's word is the only knowledge God is interested in increasing. Now, as we read on, we see that Daniel wasn't the only one listening to Gabriel (laughs) telling all these things. Look at verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, there stood other two, the one on this side of the bank of the river, and the other on that side of the bank of the river. And that word other there must refer to other angels because Gabriel is the one who's been talking this whole time. And the river there is the one Daniel was standing at when this vision started in your next reference in Daniel 10.4. I was by the side of the great river, which is the Hittical River. And you'll remember when we studied that, that was talking about a river in Babylon. You know what that tells you? That tells you that God might have had his people in captivity in Babylon, But this is one of the many proofs he didn't desert his people in Babylon. He had his angels standing there stationed with him. And as we read on, it turns out that one of those angels was just as eager to understand what Gabriel was saying as Daniel was. Look at at verse 6. One of those angels said, To the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, how long shall it be to the end of these wonders? Now the man in linen there is the same one we saw back in chapter 10. I didn't give you the reference. The one who turned out to be the Lord himself. So this angel is asking the Lord about some details of the tribulation. And what you're seeing there is an example of what you read in First Peter 1, 10, and 12, where it says, The prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come to you, which things the angels desire to look into. You know that verse. That's the verse we always quote to say that the prophets themselves didn't always understand what they just finished writing. So they searched the scriptures diligently to try to understand what they wrote. But did you notice there Peter also says that angels desire to understand those things too, just like we're seeing here in verse 6. Folks, angels are fascinating creatures, and I don't know about you, but I can't wait to meet some of them. Sit down and have a good Bible study with them. Well, the Lord doesn't leave that curious angel hanging. He answers him in verse 7. Look at verse 7. Daniel says, And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever, that it shall be for a time, times, and a half a time. And when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, 
all these things will be finished. Now, first of all, who's this one that the Lord is this swearing by, this one who, it says, lives forever? Well, look what God the Father said to Moses in Deuteronomy 32. The Lord shall say, I lift up my hand to heaven and say, I live forever. God the Father is the one who lives forever. So the Lord was swearing by him. Just like the Father swore by himself there in Deuteronomy. Now, maybe you're wondering, well, why would they do that? Why would God the Father, why would God the Son, why would they be swearing? Well, the answer is found in Hebrews 6, 13 and 16. When God made promises to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself. Why? For men verily swear by the greater. And an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Do you ever wonder why you're always hearing people say, I swear to God, it's true. It's because men always swear by the greater. Who's greater than God? But if that's true, (laughs) who's God supposed to swear by? You say, well, why does he need to swear? Well, it's because of what that verse says. He knows that swearing an oath is the way that men end all strife and confirm everything, and he wants people to believe him, so he's willing to do what men do and swear. But since there's none greater than God, he has to swear by himself. And here in verse 7 in your Bible, since he was asked how long the great tribulation would be, He swears with an oath that this terrible time will only last a time, times, and half a time. And we've seen many times that means a year, two years, and half a year. Total of three and a half years. The second half of Daniel's 70th week. And when verse 7 says that during that time he, that's the Antichrist, will, will scatter the power of the holy people, well, that's talking about how he's going to scatter them by persecuting them. And once he accomplishes that, verse 7 says, God will have had just about enough. And verse 7 says, all these things will be finished at the second coming of Christ. But as we read on, we see that Daniel didn't understand some of the things that he heard in that long two-chapter vision, so he asks the Lord about him in verse 8. And I heard, but I understood not. Then said I, O my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? Now that's a different question than the one the angel asked. Back in uh, your next reference, in chapter 12, verse 6, the angel asked, how long shall it be 
to the end of these wonders. The angel just wanted to know how long the great tribulation was going to last. And the Lord was happy to tell him, it's going to be three and a half years before I come and finish things. But Daniel, he's asking about the details of the great tribulation. And instead of answering him, the Lord tells him in verse 9, he said, go thy way, Daniel. Run along now. (laughs) For the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. So, how come the Lord didn't answer him about the details of the tribulation? Well, earlier we saw that the reason the book was closed and sealed up was because the things in the book weren't going to happen for a long time, right? So, saying that again, Saying the book is closed and sealed again here in verse 9 is the Lord's way of reminding Daniel, you're not going to live to see these things, so you don't have to understand these things. Remember how we saw that some of those details you can't get by comparing Scripture with Scripture like we always define the Word of God. Some of those details just won't be clear until they happen. But that's when people will need to understand them. And that's when they'll understand them. But the Lord does tell Daniel some details in verse 10. He says, many shall be purified and made white and tried. But the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. Now you see that word tried there? That that refers to the trying time of the tribulation. As in your next reference, Peter wrote to the Jews who were heading into that tribulation in 1 Peter 4 and verse 12. He said, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. He says, Listen, the Old Testament prophets predicted that this tribulation was scheduled to happen now. So you shouldn't be surprised when it starts to happen as it did before the mystery interrupted things. But listen, if you're not saved this morning, or if you're not saved this evening, if you're watching this video sometime later, you need to know that those Jews are not going to be purified, as it says there, from their sins, by the things they're going to be suffering in the tribulation. Notice the order of things there in verse 10. Many will be purified and made white, and then they are tried by the trials of the tribulation. I hope you understand that people never get purified from their sins by anything they suffer. 
I know people say, oh, he, you know, so-and-so, all his life he had this disease and he suffered so much in life, he surely went to heaven. No! That's not how it works. Now, religion has some goofy ideas about how it works, though, don't they? Did you ever hear the word self-flagellation? That's a word that means to punish yourself as a kind of a penance. If you are in the Catholic Church, you know what penance is. To pay for your sins. They say that the, the nun who took care of Pope Paul II, after he died, revealed that he used to whip himself as a kind of a penance to pay for his sins. And every year on Good Friday, Filipino Catholics allow themselves to be crucified as a form of penance to pay for their sins. But let me tell you, the only time the Bible talks about purifying by suffering is when it talks about how God is going to purify the nation of Israel to weed out the unbelievers from among them by the suffering of the tribulation. That's what it says in your next reference in Zechariah 13.9. I will bring the third part of Israel through the fire and refine them as silver is refined. Try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name and I'll hear them. I'll say it's my people. And they shall say the Lord is my God. In that day, the nation's going to be purified by the trials of the tribulation. But individual Jews are purified by believing the kingdom gospel. The gospel that says Jesus is your Christ, not this Antichrist guy over here. But if you're not saved this morning, you need to know... He'll save you by believing that Israel's Christ died for your sins. Amen? Amen. Now, when the faith of these purified Jews is tried in the tribulation, they're going to do what God says to do. They're going to endure to the end of the tribulation without taking the mark of the beast. But that's not what unsaved Jews are going to be doing according to verse 10 in your Bible now. <laughs> verse 10 says, the wicked shall do wickedly. You see more about that in your next reference in Revelation 16, 8 to 11. This is, Boyd and I were talking about this passage just last week, and, and I think Jim, Jim Havlicek, you and I were too. Revelation 16, 8 to 11 talking about the judgments of the tribulation. The fourth angel poured out his vial on the sun and whatever's in there. It says power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God which had power over these plagues. And they repented not to give him glory. So God says, okay, and he had the fifth angel pour out his vial upon the seat of the beast, his throne. And his kingdom was full of darkness like in Egypt. 
and they gnawed their tongues for pain. So that was no ordinary darkness, was it? It was a painful darkness. And blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and what? And repented not of their wicked deeds. Do you see what that's saying? It's saying that they will know that it is God who has power over these plagues. They'll know that he's the one sending the trials of the tribulation. But they still don't repent of their deeds. They just keep on doing those wicked deeds. It's mind-boggling. So, as the Lord says here in verse 10, none of them is going to understand these prophecies when they start to happen. But the wise, they'll understand them. Daniel, not so much. (laughs) But the Lord does let Daniel understand a few more things. As you see in verse 11, it says, From the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. Now, twelve hundred ninety, folks, that's a thirty day difference from the twelve hundred and sixty days that make up half of the seven years of tribulation. So, what's this twelve hundred ninety all about? <laughs> Well, in your next reference, remember what Daniel 9.27 says about the Antichrist? It says he'll confirm the covenant with many for one week of years. And in the midst of that week, 1260 days later, he'll cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, like we're reading here in verse 11. And for the overspreading of abominations, he'll make it desolate. And when we studied Daniel 9, we saw the abominations there happen when Antichrist sits in the temple declaring himself to be God. And there in Daniel 9, it says that it's in the middle of the 70th week that the daily sacrifice is taken away and and ceases, right? But here in verse 11, the Lord is telling Daniel that it's not going to happen in the exact middle. It'll happen 30 days before the exact middle, and then it'll be 1290 days to the end of the tribulation. And if you know your Bible... That won't sound strange to you because you know that so many things are said to happen in the middle of the 70th week. They couldn't all happen on the same day. (laughs) It's just going to take a while. All right. In verse 12, the Lord gives Daniel another detail. He says, Blessed is he that waiteth and cometh to the thousand three hundred five and thirty days. Now, that's 1,335, uh, no, I'm sorry, 1,335 days. That's 75 days different from the 1,260 days of that last half of the tribulation. So 
What's that all about? What's going to take 75 days after the tribulation is done? Well, I think it's what you see in your next to last reference there in Revelation 19, verses 20 and 21. After the battle of Armageddon, the beast was taken, cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the remnant, his armies, those who sided with him, those who were fighting with him, those who were all the unsaved of planet Earth, they're slain. And then what happens? All the fowls were filled with their flesh. That's talking about the aftermath of the Battle of Armageddon. Remember the angel calls to all the fowls of the air and says, Come, feast on the, the flesh of captains and kings and mighty mens and listen. If Antichrist armies include, as I think they will, all the unsaved of the earth. How long do you think it's going to take that ornithological cleanup crew? <laughs> I had to practice that all week. The, the bird, how long is it going to take to pick those bones clean? Well, I believe the Lord is saying 75 days. And then the kingdom can be established. And that brings us to the last verse of the book. And the Lord's parting words to Daniel in verse 13, he says, But go thy way till the end be, for thou shalt rest and stand in thy lot at the end of the days. Here the Lord's telling Daniel, you're going to rest in death. Like in your last reference there. Revelation 14, 13, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord, that they may rest from their labors. The Lord's telling Daniel, you're, you're going to die, you're going to rest. But as you look at the rest of the verse, you see he's not going to rest in death forever. He says, someday you're going to rise. You're going to stand up in thy lot. And he, he's talking about the lot that was assigned to his tribe in the promised land. Back in Joshua chapters 14 to 19. <laughs> now, now you go back there and read those chapters and you just get bored to tears. <laughs> This tribe gets this portion from this river to this, you know, and you're, keep me awake, you know. But listen, when Jews rise from the dead, imagine their excitement, their exhilaration when they read those chapters and find out where they're going to be living in the kingdom of heaven on earth with the prophet Daniel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're humbled that you have drawn back the curtain of, of the future, doing what none of the false gods can do. We, we love it in your word when you poke fun at them because they, they don't know the future. Only you know the future. 
And knowing how people love to hear about the future, people love to know what's awaiting them, you've explained it. But now, Father, as we close the book of Daniel and look forward to studying the book of Galatians, Paul's epistle to the Galatians, we look forward to learning what you have in store in the future for us. And we ask your rich blessing on that study, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.